Hot mic. We good? All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys today. Um, I don't know if you've been with us here recently, but we've been going, kind of going through this series where we're really looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you have been here, you might be sick of me telling you all about this. But if you haven't been here, it's really good to kind of kick back in to, to be reminded of where we are and where we've been. And so we've been in this series where we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been kind of looking at some of the lesser known characters. And so we started off talking about the religious leaders of the day. And it was really the religious leaders of the day that wanted Jesus to be killed. They are who plotted to kill him. They are who paid Judas off. To That's how they captured Jesus and they bring Jesus in wanting him to be killed. And they take him to Pilate, who's the state leader of the area for Rome, and they take him to him and they basically demand that he be killed. So that's kind of what happened when we talked through the religious leaders of the day. So they take him to um, Pilate. And the thing is, the reason why they want him to be killed is they really don't believe anything that Jesus says. And so they take him to the state power of Rome to Pilate, and they basically command him to kill him. Are we going in and out? Okay. Feels like I'm hearing myself, then I'm not, then I am. And Everybody good so far? Okay. So um, then we have this, this state power, like I said, of Pilate. And Pilate, he meets with Jesus. He says, this guy's done nothing to deserve death. And yet the Jewish leaders, they're, they're pushing for Jesus to be killed. And so he's like, I'm not going to kill him, but I'll punish him and I'll release him. Well, then the people freak out. There's this near riot, and the people are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so what happens is, is that he really doesn't know what he should do with them, but he, uh, his main job is to keep the peace. And because the people are freaking out, and there's not really peace, there's about a riot to happen. He kind of gives in. He wants to keep his position, and uh, he won't be able to keep his position if there's this big riot that happens. So Pilate kind of gives in, and he decides to have Jesus flogged and crucified. So Jesus is put on a cross next to two criminals, and it's not long of being on a cross that he breathes his last and he dies. And then if you were here last week, we talked about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They are the two that come and they take Jesus' body down. It would have been this filthy, filthy job. And not only would it have been filthy, they would have become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body. But they take Jesus' body down. They, they do the necessary things to prepare for, a Jesus, for Jesus' burial, for a, for a Jewish burial. So they buy a shroud, they buy spices, they, and Joseph even gives his very own tomb and they bury Jesus, and they put him in a tomb, and they roll the stone shut. And at that point in time, the religious leaders convince um, the state power, Pilate, that they should put guards at the tomb. And so Friday, by the end of the night, Jesus is dead. He's placed into a tomb. The tomb door has been rolled shut, and there's guards outside, and there's a seal put on the door. Well, then Sunday morning happens. Sunday morning happens, and, and, and instantly we see that there's an empty tomb. Mary Magdalene comes, and the stone had been rolled away, and the body's gone. She runs, and she tells Peter, and she tells John, and they run, and they, too, get there, and they see the tomb is empty. Jesus' body is gone. And then angels appear, and angel appears to Mary and says, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, they're left kind of wondering Jesus rose from the dead. These angels say it. And the guards actually see this. And it says that the guards become like dead men. So the guards are freaking out by what they had seen. And then Jesus, had been, he rises from the dead. 
And he begins making appearances to people. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to Mary and some other women. He appears to two followers kind of as they're on the road. One's name's Cleopas, and one we don't know what his name is. It's unnamed disciple. He appears to them, and then he appears to 10 of the disciples. If you remember, Jesus had originally 12 disciples. Judas is who betrayed Jesus. So down, we're down to 11. And then Jesus appears to 10 of these disciples. The only one that's not there is Thomas. And he appears to them, and he in, in the midst of all of that, the guards who had seen an angel who had freaked out, who had become like dead men, they kind of gather themselves off of the ground and they go tell the religious leaders what they had seen. Well, the religious leaders, they don't want this news getting out about some angel or anything else. And so it says that they were paid a sufficient sum of money to spread the rumor that Jesus didn't rise, that there was no angels, but that the disciples came and they stole his body. So that's kind of where we were, where we kind of end. And then there's silence for eight days. Nothing happens. No more appearances, no nothing. Jesus has has risen. He's made these appearances, and now there's nothing for eight days. And then all the disciples are together. All 11 of the disciples are together. The doors are locked. They're fearful of the Jews. They're fearful of the Romans. They kind of are like, you know, if Jesus was killed... What will they do with us, his followers? Will they do anything to us? And so they're kind of in hiding, but I think they're also really unsure of what do they do next. Like, we just pretty much did whatever Jesus told us, and now Jesus isn't around. Like, what do we do? They're uncertain of what to do. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. And as I said, it's all 11 of them. This time, Thomas is with them. We really don't know a lot about Thomas and in the Bible, um, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts all mention that he's one of the 12. Now, other than that, in John chapter 11 and John chapter 20, we find out that his, he's, he's a twin. He's got a, uh, they, they call him Didymus, which is the Greek word for twin. But we don't know who his twin is. We don't know anything. We just know he's called the twin. And then we know two things that he says. In all of the Bible, we know he's one of 12. We know he's a twin. And we know two things that he says, other than the text that we're going to talk about today. The first one is this, is when Lazarus had died, was about to die, and then Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. He says, well, let us go and die with him. Like, what in the world are you talking about, Thomas? And then at another point in time, Jesus says he's going to go away, but he's going to prepare a place for his people. And Thomas then says, if we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And again, you're like, Thomas, what are you talking about? But that's when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's pretty much all we know about Thomas, other than what we're going to talk about today. And the text that we're going to talk about today gives us a lot of information, I think, about Thomas. And it helps us see something profound about Thomas. So um, there they are, the others the 10 other disciples, they had seen the risen Jesus. And so they're telling Thomas, like, dude, we saw Jesus. But Thomas knows that dead people don't come back to life. Well, maybe other than Lazarus, but Lazarus came back to life because Jesus rose him from the dead. And if Jesus is dead, how could he rise? So the people are telling him, hey, Jesus is alive. We saw him, but he doesn't know what to think. And I'm sure he wasn't there, like I said. The first time when Jesus appears, he's not around. Well, he's probably around, and in the city, he probably hears all the commotion, all the rumors, all the conversations that the Jews stole the body. He probably hears that the disciples stole the body. And if you're Thomas, you're like, well, hey, I wasn't with the other 10. Could they have stole the body? I don't think that they would have stole the body. Would they have stole the body? He has all of these thoughts circulating in his head. 
if I'm, I would guess that he has questions in his mind. He, he's uncertain about what has happen, happened. He's skeptical that Jesus is really alive. He's probably filled with doubt. What doubt really is, is that his mind is divided. He, he, he's not 100% sure. He's hesitant in, the, in his mind. He's not grounded, and he's tossed to and fro. I think Thomas would have had to have been thinking, there's no way that Jesus is alive. I mean, I saw him beaten. I saw him nailed to a cross. I saw him breathe his last. I saw him pierced. I saw them put him in a tomb. I saw the tomb door shut. And nothing for three days. There's no way. But these people are telling him that Jesus is alive and that they saw him, but now it's been eight days. I think if I'm Thomas, I also start thinking, why would he appear to them and not to me? Why? How? how, Why? See, I think when we really talk about Thomas, what we're talking about is doubt. If you were Thomas, would you believe? What would you believe? Would you be certain or would you have some doubts? Today we're going to talk about Thomas, as I said, and we're really going to talk about doubt. We're going to talk about why we as people tend to doubt, and we're going to talk about how is it that Jesus handles doubt. Before we do, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29 is our text for today. John 20, 24 through 29, and this is what it says. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the ways that um, you can speak to us profoundly through it. I, I thank you for the ways that we see that we're not alone. I thank you for the ways that you use your word to challenge us, to encourage us, to exhort us. And I pray that today the words that come from mouth will be your words and that they would be ones that challenge and encourage us profoundly. pray this in your awesome and precious name. Amen. So there we are, Thomas. People are telling him, hey, Jesus rose, and he says this bold, bold and profound statement. He says, unless I see the holes, unless I touch the holes, I will never believe. And it's clear Thomas has some serious doubt. He's not sure. He's uncertain. He has questions. He's, he's skeptical. He's not convinced. And, and the thing is, is doubt is not a complete unbelief. What doubt is, doubt is actually faith that's laden with unbelief. He, he believes, but he, he doesn't quite believe. 
He believes, but he, he, there's holes in it. And so Thomas, I think, really wants to believe. But he just can't. Just can't quite get there. Thomas, because of this bold, profound statement, is often called Doubting Thomas. I'm sure people have heard that, uh, that saying, don't be a Doubting Thomas. And I think that what we can do is we can begin to think that Thomas, he's the doubter. It's just Thomas that doubted. And it kind of becomes like this, this, um, this negative thing of doubt. It's like, you don't want to be a doubting Thomas. But I think if you really dive into the word, I think what you would see is that doubt is far more common than we would first think. If you look and going back into Mary, remember Mary goes to the tomb and the tomb has been the, the, um, the, the tomb door, the seal, it's been opened, the, the, the stone has been rolled away. And what does she say? She runs back to the disciples and she says, someone stole the body. Then she goes back with Thomas and, or with, with uh, Peter and with John, and then they leave, and then she sees an angel, and she says to the angels, hey, you guys know where they took him? Then Jesus appears to her, risen, and she doesn't quite recognize him to start with. I don't know if her back's to him or what, but she supposes it's the gardener, and she says, hey, do you know where they took his body? Like Mary's first thing with the empty tomb was not faith, but doubt. Her first thing when she saw the empty tomb, it was not that he rose, but someone must have taken him. When Mary saw the empty tomb, it was not he must have walked out, but he must have been stolen. See, Thomas wasn't the only one to struggle with doubt. Mary struggled with doubt. But if you dive in deeper, Luke chapter 24, Mary um, tells the, the angel tells her, the angel's tell her that, that Jesus rose, and she goes, and she goes, and she tells the disciples, and it says in Luke 24, 11, but when she tells the disciples, the word seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. See, we can get hard on Thomas that Thomas is the doubter, but Mary doubted, and here we see all of the disciples doubt. Luke 24, 21, again, remember Cleopas and the other disciple that's unnamed, they're on the walk with Jesus, and they, they have Jesus in front of them, and they say, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And then they kind of like, they said, but he died. He's been dead for several days. Like, we had hoped. Hope has been lost. Hope is over. See, Cleopas and the other disciple, they too doubted. In Luke 24, 24 through 25, says this, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They found the empty tomb, and Jesus appeared to him, and Jesus said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. The disciples were doubters. Mark 16, 11 through 14 says this, but when they heard that he was alive and that Mary had seen him, so Mary has seen him, and she's telling them, like, dude, he's alive. And it says they would not believe it. And after these things, the other two, Cleopas and the other guy, come back, and they're telling them, like, dude, he is alive, and, but they would not believe them. And afterward, Jesus appears to the eleven, and he rebukes them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed. The disciples doubted. Mary doubted. Thomas doubted. It's not just Thomas. If we really look deep into the word, what I think that we see is that doubt is far more common than what you think. You can also look at Matthew 28, 16, the 11. 
disciples went to Galilee as Jesus had directed them, and Jesus appears to them, and they worshiped, but some doubted. Luke 24, 36 through 43, again, Jesus appears to all of the disciples and says, peace to you. And they're startled and they're frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. But Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and blood, excuse me, flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then, and while they still disbelieved. Doubt is so much more common than what we think. If you look through scripture, you'll see it. It wasn't just Thomas that doubted. All of them doubted. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. Thomas was bold and he was open and he was real about his doubt. And I think that you see a huge difference in that because I think oftentimes other people in Scripture and oftentimes us as people, we're not open. And we're not real about our struggle with doubt. The Bible says that there's no temptation that sees you but what is common to man. And so that means if any one of us in this room has the possibility of struggling with doubt, that means all of us can struggle with doubt. And I, I would say firmly that if every, out of everyone in here, either you have struggled with doubt, are currently struggling with doubt, or you will struggle with doubt and probably all three. If I'm real open and real, I'm this preacher guy, right? Like I come up here and I tell people what, what the Bible says and I spend tons of time reading the word and I, I like, in essence, am living my life to, to spread this good news. But if I'm open and I'm real, there are nights that I will wake up in a sweat. What's gonna happen when I die? I'm not immune from doubt. You're not immune from doubt. And as we dove into Scripture and we looked through, we see that doubt was very common. Let me say this. As I was thinking through it this week, I also thought about something that was really interesting to me. Like, we believe that, this, that God's Word is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. God gave us this. This is His Word. But when He did that, He did this amazing thing that it was penned. It was written by people. But it was his words coming out through them, and yet he still allowed their personalities to come out in this. And so check this out. Matthew, we have four accounts, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, he is one of the original 12 disciples. Matthew, Levi, he's a tax collector. He becomes one of Jesus' followers. In his account, the book of Matthew, he makes it look like that some of the disciples doubted. But then if you look through Luke, or excuse me, look through Mark, Mark was a travel companion of Paul later on. He was considered to be like Peter's son in the faith. If you read through Mark's account of Scripture, he makes it sound like all of the disciples doubted. When you look through Luke, Luke was a doctor. He was a travel companion of Paul. He does what's, he says he does this extremely careful investigation to see what was true. And then he compiles not only the book of Luke, but also the book of Acts. He makes it sound like all of the disciples doubted. And then you read John. John, one of the original 12 disciples, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He makes it sound like it was Mary and Thomas that doubted. I don't know about you, but I find the slight difference in the presentation of who doubted to be fascinating. I wonder if I'm Matthew and I'm writing my account, if I don't quite want to admit that I doubted. And so I maybe pin that some doubted. 
I wonder if I'm John, one of the 12, if I might not want to admit that I doubted. And I might kind of, yeah, Mary doubted, Thomas doubted. I'm not saying that I didn't doubt, but I'm not going to put in there that I did doubt. In fact, in the book of John, he says that as soon as he gets to the tomb and he sees the grave clothes, he believes. But yet Luke and Mark would make it sound like he doubted. How can this be? Is the, is the Bible conflicted? Is it saying two totally different things? I, I don't think it is because I think what it is is this. You can believe and yet struggle with believing. It reminds me of Mark chapter 9, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but you can believe but have unbelief. And I think that when we dive into it, we see that doubt is far more common than what we'd think. And, and I think that what we see is there's Thomas is bold and he's real and he's open about his struggle with doubt. And there are others that maybe don't quite want other people to know. I think that they feel embarrassed by doubt, their doubts. They feel ashamed by it. They, they think that it looks the, makes them look like a lesser Christian or like less spiritual. And so they tend to cover it up. They think that doubt gives them this stigma. I think it's just as true then as it is now that all of us can struggle with doubt, that doubt is common. It's far more common than what we would think. And that really we have two options, to be open and real about it or to cover it up. And I think that when we cover it up, we're left to fight our doubts alone. When we cover it up, we are in the dark, we're lonely, and we're isolated. I think another thing that can happen when we aren't real about our doubts is that we begin to become jealous of other people's faith, not knowing that they struggle with the very same doubt. We can begin to idolize people's faith on the basis that may not be accurate. Doubt is common, and we have the choice. Are we open and real about our doubts, or do we hide them? But why is it that we have doubt? I think if we really dive into the Word, I, 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 there's probably way more reasons than what I'm going to give today. But why is it that some of us struggle with doubt? Why is it that Thomas struggled with doubt? Why did the disciples struggle with doubt? Why did Mary struggle with doubt? And you know what, want to know why the first reason is? Because we're called to believe the unbelievable. If you really take time to pick this up and read it, and if you don't struggle with some aspect of doubt, you're bananas. We're called to believe that God created every single thing that you can see in six days, and on the seventh day, he's like, yeah, let's take a day off. Six days. We're called to believe that there was a flood that wiped out the entire world, except for a male and female of every animal that somehow fit onto an ark, along with Noah and his family. We're called to believe that a 90-year-old woman got pregnant. Anybody ready for that? I turned 40. I'm not quite ready for a baby. 90-year-old gets pregnant. Sarah has Abraham's child. It's kind of hard to believe. You continue on, there was a man who was swallowed by a fish. His name was Jonah. It's kind of hard to believe. And that takes just kind of the very, very quick version of Old Testament. What about New Testament? There's this baby that is born, and he's placed into a manger, and he is God in the flesh. God leaves heaven and comes as a baby. It's kind of hard to believe. 
You continue in and he was there at the beginning. This, this baby, this Jesus who comes and who, who grows up, that in the very beginning, he was there. He was creating. Nothing that has been created was not created unless he had created it. That is Jesus. That's kind of hard to believe. Then Jesus gets on the scene and he heals. He casts out demons. He walks on water. He calms the storm. He feeds thousands of people with just a couple little loaves of bread and a couple fish. He curses a fig tree. He turns water to wine. He has authority. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Like, it's kind of hard to believe. The reason why we have doubt, the reason why Thomas had doubt is because we're called to believe the unbelievable. We're called to believe that Jesus was perfectly innocent as he lived on this earth. We're called to believe that he died and he died for us because of our sins and that he rose from the dead and walked out of a tomb. We're called to believe the unbelievable and that's not the, the half of it. We're also called to believe that what happened in that moment had past, present, and future implications. It wasn't just that it happened, but it's what it meant that it happened. What it meant when it happened is that you and I, that our sins can be forgiven. No matter what we have done, no matter how dark and disgusting, messed up stuff we think or we've done, that we can be forgiven of all of that because of Jesus' death on the cross. We're called to believe that we can have a new life and an abundant life, that we can live in a perfect peace no matter the circumstances in our life. We're called to believe... Mm -hmm. We're called to believe the unbelievable. We're called to believe that one day we will depart from this life on this earth and we will be with him forever. Not for like another hundred years, not for another hundred plus hundred plus for forever. If that doesn't cause some doubt, I don't, I don't think you're grasping what this is saying. It's unbelievable. We're called to believe the unbelievable. And that while we are on this side of heaven, all of us in some way, shape, or form will probably struggle with some aspect of doubt. Doubt is very common, and it's common because we're called to believe the unbelievable. We're called to believe the improbable. We're called to believe the unlikely, the extraordinary. We're called to believe things that have never been done before, and we're called to believe things that are impossible. Things that are impossible with man yet are possible with God. That is one of the reasons why doubt exists. But I think there's another reason why doubt exists, and it's because of the hardness of heart. You see, I think our hearts instantly become hardened when things don't go the way that we want them to go. Thomas and the other disciples, they see Jesus and he's doing all these cool things and they're like, he's going to redeem Israel. He's going to like make our nation great again. This is going to be so awesome. He's the eternal king. He's, he's from the line of David and, and this is going to be awesome. He's going to establish this kingdom. He's going to take over Rome and this is, this is great. And then he dies. And when things don't go the way that you want them to go, when things don't go the way that you think that they're going to go, it's very easy for your heart to become hardened. And the second that heart becomes hardened, man, doubt creeps in. What about in your life and in my life when you start to go through some trials? When you start to be overwhelmed with temptation? When you start going through suffering? What's the first thing that happens in your head? Why would God allow this? It's the first thing. Your heart becomes hardened and doubt creeps in. I think it's the same for us. It's the same for them. You, we'll, we'll, we'll really be praying. We'll be super excited. They're like, God's going to do this and we're going to pray. We pray, 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 pray. And then he doesn't seem to answer the way that we want him to or he doesn't seem to answer at all. 
or he doesn't seem to answer on the timeline that we had set up for God to do for us what we wanted him to do. And when that happens, our thoughts go, is he even listening? Does he even care? Maybe he can't. Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he isn't even there, and maybe he never was. Doubt is common. It's far more common than what we would think. And we struggle with doubt partly because of a hardened heart. We struggle with doubt because we're called to believe the unbelievable, but we're also going to be prone to struggling with doubt, as was Thomas, because there's an enemy. We don't like to talk about it. It's weird. But all the way back in the very beginning, there's a serpent that comes to Adam and Eve. And what's the serpent say? The serpent, did God really say? The Bible tells us that there's an enemy like a roaring lion seeking to devour. You know how a lion hunts? A lion looks for those that are weak, those that are alone, and those that are vulnerable to attack. And when we're not open and real about the struggle of doubt and we're wrestling it all alone, man, we look real good to a roaring lion. The Bible tells us that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That means that there's an enemy that wants to steal our certainty, wants to kill our confidence, wants to destroy our faith, an enemy that wants to devour our passion, devour our zeal, and devour our understanding. It makes me think of the parable of the sower, right? There's seeds that are scattered, and what happens? Instantly, the bird comes in and tries to take the seed before it can give its roots. There's an enemy. There's also an enemy he wants to sow seeds of doubt. Like I said, with the serpent, the serpent says to Mary, did God really say? He introduces a question that introduces doubt. How can you know, how can you be sure our mind goes to these things? Because there's an enemy that sows these seeds of doubt. So we ask, well, how can we know? How can we know for sure? Well, what, what if? And what about? And then you get people who will be like, well, what about what science has to say? And what about evolution? And what about dinosaurs? And, what about? and all of these thoughts come barging in so much that we're like, yeah, yeah, I mean, what about all that? And uh, Doubt comes in and always will while we're on this side of the earth, while we're this side of heaven, because there's an enemy that is shooting flaming darts at us. We get to a point when we're wrestling with all of this that we can start to doubt everything. We can doubt that this is true. We can doubt that we have been saved. We can doubt his power. We can doubt his control, his promises. We can doubt that he's given us gifts. We can doubt what this purpose of life really is all about. And we can very easily begin to live for me, live for now. Just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we'll die. But the thing is, I think the scriptures tell us that doubt is far more common than what we think, that we can choose to hide it or we can choose to be open and real. I think it shows us that doubt exists because we're called to believe the unbelievable, where doubt can come in because of the hardness of heart. Doubt can come in because of there's an enemy 
that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in that moment, we see Thomas. And like I said, what I love about Thomas is that he's real and he's open. And he says this bold statement. He says, unless I see the holes in his hands, touch the holes, I see the hole in his side and put my hand in it, which is kind of disgusting, put my hand inside of it, I will never believe. How does Jesus handle doubt? Thomas is clearly doubting. How does Jesus handle it? First thing, he's not surprised by it. It wasn't like Jesus is like, oh my gosh, oh no, Thomas is like, I I better do something about this. He's not surprised by doubt. He's not scared by it. It's not like he's like, this is one one of my original 12. I've already lost Judas. I better hurry up and get something done. And what's gonna happen if he doesn't believe? He's he's not scared by it. He's not surprised by it. And he's not hurried by it. He waits eight days. I don't know if you're me. It's like, Thomas isn't believing. I better show up and fix this problem right now. But Jesus is not hurried by doubt. Eight days later, he shows up. So he's not surprised by it. He's not scared by it. He's not hurried by it. And he shows up and he says, peace be with you. Thomas is not just struggling with doubt. Thomas is conflicted inside. And Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. What I love about that, though, is that Jesus comes to him. Jesus doesn't say, like, clean yourself up, Thomas, idiot, can't believe you don't believe. After all that I've shown you, all that I've done, and you're going to be not believing, you're going to be doubting. He's not mad. He's not standing far off, judging like you. He comes to him. In the midst of Thomas's doubt, Jesus comes to him. And he gently rebukes him. He says to him, he says, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. It's unbelievable to me. He does the same thing with the others that doubt. He, he goes to the disciples and he rebukes them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart in Mark 16. And in Luke 24, he says to them, he says, oh, foolish ones. Don't be foolish. He says, oh, foolish ones, why are you slow of heart to believe? He says to them in Luke 24, why is it that doubts arise in your hearts? He's like a loving father and like a nursing mother. He gently rebukes. Jude 22 tells us that we should have mercy on those who doubt. What you see in Jesus is him doing exactly what we are commanded to do. In the midst of doubt, he comes to them and he shows them mercy. Y'all are real lucky I'm not God. I would not play that way. I'd be like, you idiots. But Jesus comes to them. He's not surprised by their doubt. He's not scared by their doubt. He's not hurried by the doubt. He comes to them and he rebukes them gently. And then he gives evidence. He says, Thomas, give me your hand. He puts his hand inside the hole. Thomas, give me your other hand. He places it inside the hole where he was pierced. He gives evidence. It's it's profound. 
Jesus gives them evidence. Now listen, he doesn't remove the need of faith. He doesn't prove it with 100% without a shadow of doubt. But he gives evidence. He allows them to touch him. He shows himself to them. You can also see in the other places where people struggle with doubt, he explains the whole Old Testament to, to Cleopas and the other disciple. He explains how, like, remember all the way back here, Moses, and this is pointing to me, and he, he goes all the way through the whole Old Testament with them. You can also see that he reasons with them, and he says, look, like, does a spirit have bones and flesh? In the midst of doubt, Jesus shows up to them, gently rebukes them. He gives them evidence. He shows them himself. He lets them touch them. He explains things at length. He reasons with them. He takes bread and he breaks it. The other thing that he does is he takes food and he eats it. It's like, hey, if I'm not real, what ha- I, I just ate some food. Like, watch this. Like, that's pretty cool because he wants to give them evidence. Another thing that he does in John chapter 21, he will show, uh, he will remind them of how he's worked in the past. Uh, Peter, his brother comes to him. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. His brother comes to him, Andrew, and says, hey, Peter, we found the Messiah. We should start following this dude. And Peter is maybe a little bit reluctant And he's out fishing one night. He fishes all night. This is in Luke chapter 5. He's out fishing all night. He tries to catch fish, doesn't catch anything all night. And then he hears this person from the side of the sea who says, hey, cast the net out on the the right side. He's like, cast the net? I've been fishing all night. But he takes it, throws it out there, and he gets so many fish that it begins to sink the boat. And he, boom, starts following Jesus. Well, what happens? Jesus dies and he rises and he appears. And then it's after the appearances and uh, Peter is not really sure what he should do. And so he's out fishing again. Like I said, this is in John chapter 21. He's out fishing again with a couple buddies and they fish all night. They don't catch any fish. And he hears from the side, throw the net out. Not thinking anything about it, he throws the net out. And again, gets so many fish that they're overwhelmed by fish. And he instantly remembers, he instantly knows that's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. In the midst of doubt, Jesus gives evidence. One of those ways that he gives evidence is he reminds us of how he has worked in the past. It's beautiful. Jesus comes to them. He gives them evidence. Um... I'm going to go quickly through this. He also will open up their minds to understand. He will give them the Holy Spirit who will give them assurance. He's their helper. He's one who will testify to the truth. It's it's unbelievable. I think he wants to do the same for you and I. He's not surprised by the fact that we struggle with doubt. He's not not, um, scared by it. He's not anxious, not worried, trying to make sure something gets fixed right away. As Duke always says, this thing where we play the long game, God kind of plays the long game on it. Now, Jesus does all this. It doesn't mean that once he does this, that doubts will never creep in again. It doesn't mean that that we won't have moments or seasons where we struggle with doubt. But in the midst of that doubt, which again is super common, Jesus wants to show up. He wants to come to you. He wants to give you evidence. He wants to open your eyes to see. He wants you to get to a point, like we said in Mark chapter 9, where, you, where we can say, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
that story is this beautiful story. This guy comes and he wants his son healed. And Jesus' disciples try to heal the kid and they can't. So Jesus shows up and he says, oh, okay, I'll take care of this. And he says to the man, he says, "Uh, what what do you want? And the guy's like, I want you to heal my son if you can. And Jesus is like, if I can. And the guy says, I believe, but help my unbelief. God wants to get us to a place to where we believe and we ask him to help in our unbelief. In the midst of unbelief, we can turn inward, trying to figure it all out, or we can turn to him. Jesus wants us to get to a point where we'll turn to him. Again, let me sum a lot of this up. Doubt is far more common than what you'd think. If you are here today and you are struggling with doubt, you're in the norm. And don't for a minute think that you're the exception. Doubt is extremely common. The the options that you have are do you cover that up or are you open and real and share it? The doubt that we have exists because we are called to believe the unbelievable. The doubt that we struggle with is there because our hearts can become hard. The doubt that is often there comes because there's an enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But in the midst of that doubt, Jesus is not scared by it. He's not surprised by it. He's not hurried by it. He wants to come to you, gently rebuke you, but say, do not disbelieve, but believe. He wants to give you evidence. What happens after this? Thomas sees Jesus, touches Jesus, and what does he say? My Lord, my God. Mary, when she sees Jesus, do you know what she says? She says, Rabbi, teacher. But when Thomas sees this, he says, my Lord, my God. I think ultimately what Jesus wants He wants us to believe. He wants us to get to a place where we have such assurance of who he is that we say, my Lord, my God. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself that we would be a people that are open and real in the midst of our doubt. That we would be a people that realize that Jesus is close by and he's looking to give us evidence. He's wanting to open up our minds to help us understand. He's wanting the Holy Spirit to give us the assurance. He wants to lead us to a place where we are able to to say, my Lord and my God.